Welcome to the Astrocast. Welcome back to the Astrocast. It is me, Rue. It is Monday night. It is January 29th, 2024, and we're feeling good. The sky is very clear. The moon is not quite up yet. We just got done with the full moon for this month. That means we're counting down less than two weeks to go before noon moon comes back and shines on us all. Or doesn't shine on us all, I should say. Because if it's shining, then it's kind of annoying. That's something uh, a lot of people may not know about astronomers. Uh, You would think that most of us enjoy seeing a full moon. But the reality is uh, most astronomers, astrophotographers in particular, are not big fans of the moon. You see, the moon is extremely bright. And it's one of those things that you don't really notice until you get into astronomy. You know, you go outside, you see the moon, you don't think too much of it. It's always there. Sometimes it's not. Mostly it is, but you don't really think about how bright it is. I mean, as a child, I can remember, you know, summer nights when you could see right through a field when you're outside playing with your friends because the moon's outside and it's just so bright. That's really all that you think about when it comes to the brightness in the moon. But the reality is when you're out doing astronomy, if that moon is close to your target and it's more than 50% full, it makes it very difficult to see a lot of stuff in the night sky. And in particular, if you would like to take photos of those things in the night sky, the moon can be a real night killer. So as astrophotographers, what we like to do is plan around the moon as much as possible. And anytime new moon rolls around, if the weather's good, you're going to have a very happy astronomer. I can promise you that. So thanks for joining us again. Uh, It's week four, episode four. We're still rolling along. We've had quite a few listeners. I'm quite happy with the response that we're getting early on. I've got big news in the way of guests. It is not this week, but it is coming. Uh, We have officially booked our first guest appearance on the show, and it is a really good one. I'm very excited about it, and I think you will be too. Maybe when we get to the end of the episode, I'll announce who's going to be joining us soon. I just got to get that interview scheduled, and I think it's going to be awesome, and it should give you some insight into things that you don't normally get to see or do yourself if you're an amateur astronomer like I am. Again, you're listening to the Astrocast. This is your host, Rue. We're going to take a quick break. When we get right back, we're going to dive into today's topic. Thanks for listening. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Astrocast. This is your host, Drew. I want to thank everybody again for joining us this week. We have quite a few things to talk about, and I wanted to start with something that was brought to my attention by a fellow listener this weekend while I was having a discussion with him. He's a very close friend of mine, and I value his opinion very much so as he has been in the tech sector for nearly his entire life, similar to myself. Uh, We share similar interests. Uh, We both love audio Uh, anything that sounds good. We like to hear as they say, I don't know who says that actually kind of think of it, but I guess that's what I say. If it sounds good, I'll give it a listen. And he told me something that I didn't consider. He said, you know, Rue, 
when you're making these episodes, it's a good idea to consider those who might listen along that aren't actually astrophotographers. He asked me, he said, have you ever listened to a podcast where you don't actually do the thing that they're discussing, but you really enjoy hearing about it? And I thought to myself, wow, that's most of the podcasts that I listen to. Um, I love hearing about hobbies. I love watching, you know, YouTube channels for things that I will probably never personally do myself, uh, but I thoroughly enjoy watching. Like, for example, I love watching uh, content SV Delos, which is a, uh, a sailing vessel, a guy, uh, basically quit his tech job, bought a sailboat, and he's been sailing around the world for years now and actually is raising his daughter with his wife on the boat. And I'm a huge fan of that. Would I ever quit my job and buy a sailboat and sail around the world? Probably not. But I do enjoy living vicariously through it. And one of the uh, fun things is learning about how you know sailboats work while they go along their adventures. So I want to pause a little bit from time to time, not on everything, mind you, but for example, last week I was talking about equatorial mounts, and I think I made a bit of a broad assumption that everyone who was listening would know what an equatorial mount is. And in looking back, I thought to myself, the first time I heard the words German equatorial mount, I had no idea <laughs> what it what they were talking about. So I want to uh, just briefly discuss what a German equatorial mount is to begin. So there are lots of different designs of telescopes throughout history that people have used. And nowadays, there are several different designs still, but predominantly we see two major types of telescopes outside of the Dobsonian, which is a separate topic that we can discuss momentarily, but it is the Alt-AS, which stands for Altitude and Azimuth Mount, and then the GEM, or German Equatorial Mount. And these two designs are predominantly what astronomers use when either looking at objects in the night sky or taking images of objects in the night sky. And a German equatorial mount in particular is what people like myself use to get these images. So you, you might ask yourself, what is a German equatorial mount? Well, if you've ever seen a telescope that has a bar coming off of the bottom of it and counterweights at the bottom, it's kind of the classic telescope design if you've ever seen a photo or even a drawing of one, that would be an equatorial mount. They are balanced on both sides to rotate as smoothly as possible when traveling along that axis. So there are two different axes that this particular mount can travel along. The first one, and most important, maybe not most important, but uh, most utilized, is the right ascension axis. And this is the same one that the night sky appears to take. So as the stars rotate overhead while the earth turns, that is right ascension. So if you were to, let's say, take your finger and put it at arm's length and point at a star and then follow that star as it traveled along the night sky very slowly with your finger, that would be right ascension rotation. Now, declination can be a little bit harder to explain without an actual visual diagram, but for our purposes, let's say it is the other axis that a telescope travels along other than right ascension. Of these two, however, right ascension is the most critical to astrophotography. So whenever we're talking about mounts, the reason that we say an equatorial mount is needed is because it can track in that right ascension axis. And by doing so, you do not have a 
telescope that is moving up, down, left, and right constantly trying to track an object in the night sky, but is rather just freely rotating along that same axis that the night sky appears to follow as we travel through space. Now, the advantage to having this type of mount is that since the axis is a rotational axis, if we are to rotate that axis at the exact same speed that the Earth rotates, if we were to point a telescope that is attached to a rotational axis directly at a star, and we know exactly how fast the Earth is spinning, and then we hook up a motor to that axis and have it spinning at the same speed as the Earth's rotation, well then we, we can continuously track one object, one star, one nebulae, one galaxy in the night sky without having to make any further adjustments. You can begin to see why this is much more efficient than something like an as mount, which you can only move up, down, left, or right, because in having to move this way, you are constantly making minute adjustments up, down, left, and right to keep following this star. So if something, let's say the star Betelgeuse and Orion is moving overhead throughout the night from east to west, and we have our telescope fixated on it, with an equatorial mount, it's just going to smoothly move along right over our head while we drive that motor and it's going to stay in one place all night long as long as that motor continues to turn. If we were using an alt-as mount, we have to always move it up left, up left, up left until we get to the highest point in the night sky that that object travels and then we have to go down right, down right, down right. So this is not only less efficient, but it's less accurate in terms of tracking. Whenever we are taking long exposure photographs, it is important for us to be able to take, you know, one minute, three minute, some people even do as high as 10 to 30 minute long exposures. And if we were constantly making up and down motions while tracking that object, you would have lots of artifacts and other unwanted information introduced into your photo that is not helpful to the astronomical viewing. So when I say a 30 minute exposure, you might hear that and think, what is a 30 minute exposure? What does that mean? He's taking pictures for 30 minutes straight. That is not the case. Uh, it's not multiple pictures, but it is just one photo that takes place over a set period of time. In this example, we're saying 30 minutes. And what that would mean is that the camera sensor, so the, the lens, if you will, opens up and it's looking at one spot in the night sky. And then that lens does not close for however long we sit, in our case, 30 minutes. And now picture if you're having a telescope and it's open, absorbing all the light coming from one spot in space. If you are having to make adjustments over and over, that are in two different directions, then it's not going to appear to smoothly move along with the rotational axis that we discussed earlier, and that can introduce artifacts into your photo. So usually the corners appear to be twisted and rotating whenever you see photographs taken with these types of mounts because it's having to make those up down, left, right type movements, whereas the equatorial mount is not. So that is the big advantage of using an equatorial mount in astronomy and astrophotography. Now, all that being said, there is a very great place for the other type of mount. So the alt as mount, as we discussed earlier, the altitude being, you know, the degree, how high you are in the sky, that's your altitude. And then your azimuth being how far you 
east or west of the North Pole you are. So first of all, the big advantage with these types of mounts is they're very easy for beginners to understand. You can just move it all the way to the left until you're directly under your target and then move it straight up to get to your target. I'll never forget the first telescope that I ever purchased. It, we were going down for a family trip to the beach and my niece and nephew were going to be coming along with me. And I had had a great interest in astronomy for quite some time and was beginning to learn some basic things like, you know, which planets are in the sky at any given time. And I decided that it would be a great time to purchase a telescope and bring it with me to the beach so I could enjoy it with my niece and nephew and hopefully show them some parts of the night sky. So when we get back from the break, I'm going to explain exactly why that did not work out as I had intended it to and how you can avoid making the same mistake that I did if you are a friend, a parent, or family member and are looking to introduce astronomy to a loved one and aren't really too sure about the details. We're going to get into the specifics of what is and is not a good telescope to start with as an absolute beginner when we get back from the break. You're listening to the Astrocast. I'm your host, Rue. Thanks. <laughs> Welcome back to the Astrocast. Thank you for joining us this week. We are discussing what is and is not a good telescope for an absolute beginner when it comes to astronomy. Now, I am going to be referring to visual astronomy for this discussion, just to be clear. I think we've already pretty clearly covered what is the best beginner rig if you want to do astrophotography. If you're interested in hearing about that, you can reference episode one where we discuss building an entire rig from scratch or episode three where we discuss star trackers. If you'd like to hear a bit more basic, uh, cheaper introduction to astrophotography, that would be a great place to start. But for today, we're discussing visual astronomy. And as such, I wanted to go ahead and give a few ideas for what would be a good purchase for a budding astronomer in your life. So the first thing I want to talk about is what you absolutely should not buy. And it's it's it can be a little bit confusing because for typical products that I buy, I would probably go to Amazon first. I think it's the first place that most of us think about when we think about, okay, I'm going to go buy something new. Let me go check Amazon. But in this case, while Amazon does sell some good telescopes, if you were to just go into Amazon and search for telescope for beginners, you unfortunately are going to be met with a lot of terrible telescopes that are oftentimes referred to as hobby killers, unfortunately. These can be uh, you know, found by looking for a few qualities that they all seem to share, and the first one is going to be price. If you see anything for under $100, that is not a good telescope. It's not a good telescope for a beginner. It's not a good telescope for somebody who has a lot of experience in doing astronomy. Unfortunately, the very cheap, you know, while they seem like they are a great deal to at least get you out there and get seeing some things, the best they can really do is show you the moon and maybe a uh, dim view of our closest neighbors, you know, Jupiter and Venus, Mars, etc. But other than that, they're not going to be very good. If you only had $100 to spend and you wanted to get into astronomy, that money would be much better much 
better spent on a decent pair of binoculars. And at that price point for $100, you can find quite a few, you know, excellent pairs of binoculars for a beginner. And that opens up a whole world of views of the night sky. If you ever get a chance, perhaps you have a pair of binoculars somewhere and you've just never used them for outdoor night viewing, go outside with them and have a look up at the night sky and you will be absolutely blown away by the number of stars and even, you know, celestial objects that you can see through binoculars. For example, I like to use my Celestron binoculars to check out the Andromeda galaxy. It's, uh, you know, from my Bortle 6 night sky and my front yard in Charlotte, North Carolina, I can see the Andromeda galaxy with a decent pair of binoculars. That alone is really cool to be able to literally look at another galaxy with your own two eyes from your light polluted sky, you know, in your suburban neighborhood. That's pretty awesome. So again, if your budget was about $100, I would strongly encourage you to either save up a little bit more and you don't have to save for too long to get something that's somewhat decent. If you can't wait and you just really got to get out there and have a look, you know, go for a pair of binoculars. That's going to be a good bet. All right, great. So we know to avoid the cheapos. That's, you know, the really flimsy looking aluminum tripods. They're a good giveaway. Anything that has the word G Skyer in the name, avoid it. Avoid it like the plague. If you see G Skyer telescope, that unfortunately is a terrible, terrible instrument that I would not wish on my worst enemy. I'll admit some of them look relatively nice, but the ones that appear to look nice to somebody who doesn't understand astronomy are actually full manual equatorial mounts. So do you remember how earlier we were discussing the equatorial mount and how if you were to connect a motor to it and have it slowly rotate at the same speed that our planet is moving, it would be able to track an object in the night sky? Well, those cheap manual only equatorial mounts, while they can do that, they do not have a motor attached to them. They instead have what's called a fast turn and a slow turn uh, dial, essentially, that you twist to rotate that equatorial mount. And, you know, for an experienced astronomer, that's not that big of a deal. But if you are a budding astronomer and don't have any experience using an equatorial mount, it can be incredibly confusing. They often come on very, very flimsy aluminum tripods that you know, if you barely bump into them, they're completely knocked out of what we call polar alignment. And that's a separate discussion that complicates things even further for a beginner. But polar alignment is something that does need to be done on one of these mounts. And that can be very confusing for a beginner. So if you're trying to nurture the interest of a family member, friend, loved one, whoever it is, avoid G Skyer. So you know, the dead giveaways are, they're under $100 or usually under $200 even. They have those cheap aluminum tripods. And again, if you see counterweights and you don't see a motor, don't bother. I'm telling you, it's it's not going to be a good result for your, uh, for your friend. And if you want them to truly enjoy the hobby, then let's talk about our next objects. So what is that? What is the excellent, easy-to-use, beginner-friendly telescope that you can start to learn the night sky with? Well, I'm going to give you two different options. One is going to be a little bit simpler, and one is going to be a little bit more complex, but not 
overly complex to where it would be impossible to learn as a beginner by yourself. And I say that because it was my very first telescope and I still own it and I still use it from time to time. And that telescope is the Celestron Astrophy 130. Now, this is not a very popular telescope in terms of units that get moved these days. In fact, I'm not sure that Astrophy is one of the main brands that Celestron is still making. I see a lot of their star sense explorer telescopes online at places like High Point Scientific. But the reason that I like the Astrophy is because it has a built-in tracking mechanism. So you've got a hand controller that you can enter in different objects to, and you've got that tracking. So if you, you know, find Jupiter, for example, and want to follow it for an extended period of time, it will automatically track it for you. And best of all, it is actually cheaper than the very, you know, similar telescopes that Celestron sells that just use your cell phone to locate an object but do not have that tracking motor built into them. So I saw some of the ones that are, uh, I think they're called StarSense, if I'm not mistaken, and they just mainly use your your you know phone to do all of the work, and they do not track objects, and they're going for about $700 now. So whereas the Astrophy 130, which has the same size telescope on it, actually does the tracking, and is under $500. So I'm gonna tell you where you can still get that telescope for under $500, and it is not the normal store that I reference, which is High Point Scientific, but rather B&H Photo. So bnhphoto.com, uh, you can just search them on Google. If you go there and just do a simple search for Astrofi, that's A-S-T-R-O-F-I, 130. It'll come right up for you. It's an excellent, excellent telescope. It is a Newtonian reflector. That is the type of telescope that it is. And it does use the aforementioned alt as mount. So this telescope can be slightly more complicated than the other one that we're going to talk about, just because in order to use the built-in tracking, you have to do something called a three-star alignment. And that is basically where you take your telescope and you point it at three different stars or planets. And once you get to the particular star that you're telling the telescope you're going to, you basically just confirm that yes, it is looking at that star. And then you move to your next star and again, confirm that you are looking at it. And then finally the third star. And by doing this, the telescope knows where it is in the night sky. And the big advantage to the beginner is once the telescope knows where it is in the night sky, you can enter in any object that you want, search for it on your cell phone, and it can do a go-to, which is very, very cool. So let's say, for example, that I set up my Celestron telescope and I do my three-star alignment. Let's say that it's summertime and I use, you know, three bright stars. We'll say the summer triangle constellation. So uh, I start with Vega. I work through the other two stars. And once I'm done, I can say, okay, now I want to 
go to the Eagle Nebula in the Milky Way. What that telescope can do based on its you know known position is then automatically move to that nebula and center it in the eyepiece for you, at which point you can change out eyepieces. You know, if you want to start with a wider eyepiece and then slowly add power to it, maybe you're looking at a planet. That's a great way to do that, as it is with any target, is to start with a low power eyepiece and then, you know, slowly increase the magnification so you can get a closer and closer look at the object. And it's going to hold that object in place for you automatically. So you don't have to think about it. If you've got friends that are hanging out with you and you want them to you know, have a look, they can walk over at their leisure and look through the eyepiece and enjoy the view. Whereas with that cheap uh, one that we were talking about earlier that I promise this is the last time I'm going to mention it, uh, you would have to be continuously turning that right ascension dial that I was telling you about in order to track the object. So as you can see, that becomes a big disadvantage because if you're looking at something really close, it's going to move very quickly through your field of view if you're not tracking it. So it's just a huge advantage. It's an awesome telescope. It uses, I, I may have misspoken earlier and said that it has a hand controller. It does not have a hand controller, but it does have Wi-Fi built into it and you connect from your phone directly to the telescope and that is where you control it from and what i meant earlier uh when i was saying that the other uh, Celestron StarSense telescope just uses your phone. What I meant was you literally point your phone at the night sky and it kind of tells you where to move the telescope to to find an object, which is kind of fun in its own way. But once you find that object and locate it, then you're kind of on your own. It doesn't track from there. So the advantage again is uh, tracking is built in. You have a huge list of available targets that are built right into that Celestron app. So, you know, if you to look at Orion Nebula, you can go to it. If you want to look at Jupiter, you can go to it. If you want to look at the moon, you can go to it. And once you get that initial three-star alignment, which, you know, once you figure out how it works, it's only going to take you about five minutes, if that, to do, then you're set to go and ready to go all night long to look at as many objects as you want. And that's a, a really cool feeling. So we are going to take a quick break. And when we return, we are going to talk about the other type of telescope that I highly recommend for beginners. You are listening to the Astrocast, and I'm your host, Drew. Thanks. Welcome back to the Astrocast. Thank you for listening this week. Before the break, we were discussing excellent beginner telescopes, and we just got done talking about the Celestron, and now we are moving on from that out as Newtonian telescope to the other type of excellent beginner telescope, which I believe if you were to ask any astronomer, they would tell you is a Dobsonian telescope. So, Dobsonian telescopes are very large generally, so they are known as light buckets. That's what we call them in the astronomy world because they appear to be giant buckets that can gather lots and lots of light and generally are uh, very inexpensive when compared to their counterparts, which are much smaller and up on different types of mounts that are very different from a Dobsonian. Uh, their big advantage is since they can be made 
relatively inexpensively due to their simple design, you can get a lot more mirror for your money, if you will. So what may not be apparent to beginners as an astronomer is something called the aperture of the telescope. Now, when I say more mirror for the money, what I am referring to is the mirror in the very bottom backside of a Dobsonian telescope that is actually gathering all of the light. And the term that we use in astronomy to refer to this mirror in its particular size dimension is called the aperture. So the reason that the aperture is so important is that the aperture determines the overall size of the mirror that is gathering the light if you are using a reflector telescope or the lens that is concentrating the light if you are using a refractor telescope. So astronomers look for telescopes with the largest aperture possible because that allows more light to enter the telescope. And more light means many different things, but for our purposes visually, more light means that you get a brighter, clearer picture from your telescope. The reason a Dobsonian telescope is so great when it comes to aperture is that dollar for dollar, you will not find more aperture for your money with any other type of telescope that is on the market. So for example, a very nice William Optics, which is a high-end brand refractor telescope with an aperture of 120 millimeters, goes for nearly $3,300. Whereas a Dobsonian telescope with an 8-inch aperture can be had for as little as $650. So you begin to understand why it's such a good value when you consider how much more light you're able to gather when visually observing the stars. The other reason that Dobsonian are great for beginners is that they're just very inexpensive. When you consider that the, you know, the Dobsonian I was just referring to can be had for just $850, that's actually an excellent telescope to get started with, and it's extremely easy to use. The type of mount that Dobsonians use, which is actually what they are named after, and that comes from the inventor of the Dobsonian mount, one John Dobson, who patented his idea in 1965. It basically sits on a lazy Susan type mount that is able to freely rotate on its base and then move up and down parallel to the ground and the zenith, which is the spot directly overhead in the night sky. So this is very intuitively easy for us to use if we see a star in the night sky. We simply rotate that base until the telescope is directly underneath whichever star we're looking at, and then move it up or down until we're perfectly lined up with that star. Now, the disadvantage to the Dobsonian mount, with a uh, few exceptions for very expensive, you know, custom-built rigs, is that they are, generally speaking, manually powered. So you do have to move and rotate that telescope yourself to follow objects in the night sky. But when you do get on that object and you're able to see it with your own eyes, a uh, dollar for dollar, you are always going to get a better view with something like an 8-inch, 10-inch, or even 12-inch Dobsonian than compared to something like the 130-millimeter uh, telescope we referenced earlier, which is just a you know a smaller aperture, and therefore it gathers less light. So Dobsonian telescopes are going to be the second recommendation for beginners, and I'm going to recommend one in particular. 
and that is going to be the Apertura Dobsonian. And there are several different models. Generally, entry-level Dobsonian telescopes come in either 8-inch, 10-inch, or 12-inch sizes. You do occasionally see 6-inch versions, but I would honestly stay away from those. That's starting to get smaller and smaller to where it's not going to have quite as, you know, much of a wow factor when you look at the night sky. And going from something to an 8-inch to a 10-inch is actually quite a large jump up in terms of light gathering capacity. So really take your time and look at and consider these are very large telescopes. As I stated earlier, you might be able to load in an 8-inch Dobsonian fairly easily into the back of your car or back of your SUV to go down to a star party with, whereas a 12-inch Dobsonian is kind of a whole different monster in terms of size and weight. And while, you know, if you have a large truck or large SUV, you can certainly move it into that vehicle. You have to consider, you know, how long is it going to take me to pull this out of the house at night when I want to use it in my front yard? Um, And just, you know, different things to consider and think about. There's pros and cons to every type of telescope that there is. That's why so many astronomers own multiple rigs because they all have different great things about them and they all have their downsides as well. And one of the funnest parts of astronomy is exploring different types of, you know, optical instruments and finding your way through the hobby in terms of starting with a Newtonian reflector like I did and eventually working my way over to a refractor telescope, which is something that someone who starts with a Dobsonian might do if they decided they wanted to get into astrophotography further down the line. So we are going to take a quick break and we'll be back in just a moment. I've got a, a few more pieces of information regarding the Dobsonian and reflector mounts that we talked about today. And I also have a few books that I want to recommend for beginners. So you are listening to the AstroCast. I'm your host, Drew, and we'll be right back. Welcome back to the AstroCast. I'm your host, Rue. Thank you for joining us today. Uh, we were discussing the best beginner telescope if you wanted to purchase yourself a telescope because you're getting into astronomy or perhaps you have a friend, a family member, or another loved one that is interested in astronomy and you are looking to get one as a gift for them. So today I recommended a Alt-As Newtonian reflector and also a Dobsonian telescope for beginners. And the reason that I recommend these for beginners is because if you truly want to get into and appreciate astronomy these days, I would highly recommend starting with visual astronomy. I feel like so many people skip over this and it is such a joy to learn how the night sky operates. And I really feel like getting out under the night sky with a telescope, with eyepieces and maybe a friend and learning how these things work and how the night sky moves and how to locate different stars and star hop and all of the other great things that you get to explore when you're doing visual astronomy, it's easy to skip over them today because we have smart telescopes that you can basically turn on, set down on the ground and walk away for 10 minutes and come back and they're already taking an image of whatever you like. You know, maybe that's for you, but me personally, I started with visual astronomy and I am so glad that I did because I have a much deeper appreciation for the night sky 
sky and the hard work that astronomers put in to their craft so they can truly understand how the night sky operates. Okay, I'm going to get off my soapbox now and get to those uh, two books that I wanted to talk about. And the reason I'm bringing up two books is because I think if you're going to do visual astronomy, star chart books can be an excellent resource to find your way around the night sky, which is something that you're going to want to learn to do. Even if you get the first telescope that we referenced, which has that go-to functionality built into it, it is a uh, good idea to be able to know where a few stars are because you will have to do that three-star alignment. So these books are excellent because they give you really cool ideas for different objects to see in the night sky, and they explain a lot of detail in terms of, you know, how astronomy works and, you know, where you should point your telescope if you want to see really cool objects. So the first one's going to be called Turn Left at Orion, and that is by Guy Consul Magno, and forgive me if I completely butchered your name, and Dan Davis. You can find this book on Amazon, and if you do get it from Amazon, I'm going to recommend that you get the spiral-bound version. And the reason for that is it's much larger, and you can lay it down flat on any surface. Suppose you have a table set up, and you're out looking at the stars with your telescope nearby. You can also set it right on the ground and look down at it to reference the various objects that you're attempting to locate, which is something that I often did. So on the other side, there is another book called Night Watch by one Terence Dickinson. This book is actually kind of similar to Turn Left at Orion, but it does highlight some different objects and it is really discussed in a different way is kind of the, the best way that I could describe it. Both are an absolute masterclass in beginners to expert reference guides for astronomy, so I can highly recommend both of them. Now, another thing to reference when you're first starting out is it can be really handy to have an app that can help you find, you know, a few objects in the night sky easily. Remember earlier when we were talking about that three-star alignment? Well, how do you get to those three stars? Well, you can use an app. So if you were to download, let's say, Sky Safari, you can load that up on your iOS or Android device and then point it directly up at the night sky, and it'll actually show you the stars and objects that you're looking at through your phone screen. So if you are to locate one of the brighter objects, it'll be apparent because it it looks like a really bright star on your screen, and then you can use that as a reference point when you're doing your three-star alignment. Another more simple app is uh, SkyMap. I believe Google is actually the people who made this first, but I believe it shows a different developer these days, but SkyMap's an excellent resource. It's not quite as in-depth as Sky Safari. Sky Safari can do some pretty crazy stuff. It can actually control your telescope, like the Celestron telescope I mentioned that would be great for a beginner. You can actually control the telescope through that Sky Safari app if you get the pro version and then you can use it to, you know, find a specific object and then say, hey, go to this, uh, you know, from the app, which is something that a lot of people like to do. So uh, one other app that I'm going to reference, it is not related to finding stars, but rather uh, finding a good time to stargaze. And that is going to be called good to stargaze and it's actually the number two so good number two stargaze and it's all one word so if you look that up on android or ios it is an excellent resource for determining if it is a good night or not to view the stars you know i just looked at the app and it's not the number two it's the word two i don't know how i invented that in my head but <laughs> good to stargaze without the number two just the word to you and it's going to cover things like 
the wind chill, the weather. It's going to tell you uh, the phase of the moon. So if you were doing astrophotography, for example, and you want to know if the moon is you know 20% full versus 80% full, it's going to tell you that. It's going to tell you the cloud cover in your area. It's also going to tell you the wind. It's going to tell you the light pollution as far as what level you are on the Bortle scale, which is something that we discuss in depth in episode one. It'll also tell you sunrise and sunset times, visibility. It's going to tell you which planets are up at any given time. Like right now, only Jupiter is visible in the night sky for me. So it's telling me J is visible, which is uh, pretty awesome. So it's a, it's a really great app to have. The free version is excellent. They do have a paid version that gives you some additional features. But for me, the free app just works great. And it's something that I use all the time to check and see what conditions are going to be like. One thing that a lot of people don't realize when they're first getting into astronomy is just how difficult it is to find ideal conditions. You know, some people travel a long way to get to really dark skies. And when they get there, they don't have great conditions. So we like to plan ahead as much as we can and look at, you know, historical data and these types of things. If we're going to be making a trip out to a dark sky and apps like Good to Stargaze just make it so much easier because with a quick reference point like that, you're able to determine really quickly whether or not it's good. In fact, the very first category is just, is it good to stargaze or not good to stargaze? In each one of the you know various parameters, wind chill, light pollution, etc., it'll be color-coded. If it's green, then that means it's good. If it's red, that means it's bad, and yellow is somewhere in between. So highly recommend checking that app out. Again, it is available on Android and iOS. It's called Good to Stargaze. The other ones we referenced earlier were Sky Safari Pro and Sky Map. So those are going to be the recommendations for beginners to go ahead and grab with that first telescope. So before you get out under the night sky, go ahead and familiarize yourself with these apps and figure out, you know, how they work and what you need to do to find stars in the night sky. Don't expect to go out on night number one and be an expert. You're not going to be. Nobody is. It's part of the process. But with, you know, the right training and the right references, you're certainly going to get there quicker than you would without. So check those out. My personal favorite among those two books is going to be Turn Left at Orion. So if you could only get one, I would say get that. It's really awesome. It has amazing illustrations of all the objects that you're going to be viewing. And it shows you exactly how that object looks through the eyepiece of the telescope. And it'll even show you at different powers how the object looks. So, you know, this is, uh, you know, at 300 millimeters, this is at a thousand millimeters, etc. Um, So a very, very cool book, an awesome one that I'm glad to own and would happily buy again. So check those out. We're going to take a quick break. And when we get back, I got one more topic to cover before we start to wrap things up. You are listening to the Astrocast and I'm your host, Drew. Thanks. Welcome back to the Astrocast. I'm your host, Rue, and today we were talking about beginner telescopes, and we are going to uh, switch gears to wrap things up. wanted to talk about something really cool that I saw in astronomy news over the weekend, which is something that I think a lot of us dream about doing as astronomers, and few of us actually get to take advantage of, and that is actually discovering something new in the night sky. So what I am referring to specifically is an amateur astronomer in Hungary by the name of Christian Cern- 
Professor Nexi was actually out observing on Saturday night, which was January 20th, when he actually spotted a new asteroid using his amateur astronomer's telescope. So what he did is once he spotted the asteroid, he went ahead and took quick action and got it over to what is called the Minor Planet Center. And these folks basically coordinate observations uh, with other astronomers that are out viewing on that night. And they have other people confirm that this is indeed a real object and that it's traveling the same path, you know, that the original observer saw. Now, once that happens and they are able to confirm uh, that it is indeed real, they go ahead and activate the ESA's uh, Meerkat system, which is a really cool system that monitors impacts for potential, you know, asteroids, comets, etc. And it will be able to give us a ton of data on things as far as the speed, the size, etc. with which this asteroid impacted the Earth. So being that he did discover it, um, technically he could name the asteroid after himself, but he quickly realized that it was making its way to Earth. So it was on a collision course with Earth. By the time he had made his fourth or fifth observation, it was very apparent that it was going to collide with Earth. And the asteroid is actually now known as 2024 BX1, uh, but it did enter the Earth's atmosphere just, you know, a few hours after it was originally discovered. And around 1.32 local time on that Sunday morning, it went ahead and burned up and lift, you know, just a beautiful trail for the folks who were able to witness it uh, Across, uh, Europe. So pretty cool. Uh, I, I've often thought about what it would be like to discover a comet. Um, growing up, I was a huge fan of The Simpsons and Bart's Comet is one of my all-time favorite episodes. And it just got better and better as I got a little bit older and was able to appreciate it. And then I got into astronomy and man, I love it. So, uh, you know, burn out the observatory so this never happens again is what they say at the end of the episode. And we, we certainly don't want to be burning down any observatories, but I could definitely understand and, uh, the excitement of the people if such a thing were to happen. And, uh, you know, it will happen. It's it's not a matter of if but when when it comes to things like asteroids and comets. What's crazy is that so much of the night sky we can't see because it is indeed the day sky and the sun blocks our view from seeing a large part of space. There are millions of comets that are orbiting our solar system and at any given time, we only are aware of a small portion of them. So comets spend most of their years in the Kuiper Belt and the Oort Cloud, and generally, on astronomical terms, have a very short lifespan of usually just a couple hundred years. But many can last as long as 10,000 or longer in terms of years, but still, you know, galactically, universally speaking, this is a very, very short timeline. So we need to uh, keep funding programs like NASA, like the ESA, so we can have more people identifying more comets, because if we are able to find out that one is on a path with us, we are able to take action. But if we don't even know that it's coming and we don't even discover it until hours before impact, similar to the asteroid that was discovered last weekend, which I don't want to scare anyone, it's a very typical occurrence uh, for small bodies like this one to smash into the earth or just burn up in the atmosphere and the majority of them do absolutely no harm but 
one day one will come that does do harm. And we do want to be aware of when it is coming, if at all possible, so we can attempt to do something about it. So congratulations again to Mr. Christian Sarnexi, and forgive me if I mispronounced your name, uh, for their discovery of the small asteroid over the weekend. Very cool that so many amateur astronomers were able to turn their telescopes toward that point of the sky and help him confirm that the object was indeed on the trajectory that it was. We are going to take one more break, and when we come back, we're going to go ahead and wrap up the show. You are listening to the Astrocast. I'm your host, Drew. Thanks for listening. Welcome back to the Astrocast. This is your host, Rue. Thanks again for joining us this week. I feel a little bit strange giving a recommendation that uh, since half of today's episode was pretty much recommendations, but I am going to nonetheless. And this is a very cool, very fun recommendation for anyone who loves the stars like I do. It's actually going to be a film this week. And if you somehow have not seen this, I can't imagine anyone listening to this show has not seen this. This movie and that is actually the reason why I am going to make it my recommendation because if there is somehow one person who has not seen the 2014 epic science fiction film by the name of Interstellar starring one Matthew McConaughey and Anne Hathaway I am going to highly recommend that you check it out Interstellar is an incredibly awesome journey Uh, It explains some very complicated scientific concepts in ways that are really easy for us to understand. And it does it with quite a degree of accuracy, in fact. One Kip Thorne actually served as a scientific consultant on the film, so the director was able to get, you know, a lot of the little details right when it comes to things like time dilation and black holes. And overall, it's just an amazing film. If you're into astronomy, if you like knowing about, you know, the speed of light and black holes and gravitational waves, etc., etc., definitely check that out. Again, I am willing to bet 99.9% of my listeners Listeners have probably seen this movie. Maybe it's time to go watch it again, though. So that's going to be my recommendation for this week. I talked uh, early on in the episode about the upcoming guest that we are going to have on the show. And after giving a little bit of thought, I don't want to name drop anyone before they actually appear on the show. So I am going to go ahead and skip that. But I want to give you my very best promise that I am working hard to get him on the show as soon as possible. And I'm going to do my best to run that down this week. And once he is here. It's going to be awesome to share that conversation with you all. So thank you so much for joining us this week on the Astrocast. Really appreciate everyone who's been listening along. If you would like to share this podcast with a friend or family member, please do. Uh, We are not using any money on advertisements right now. We're very early in our process and we're just trying to, you know, get our name out there. So if you're enjoying the podcast, feel free to, you know, leave a review on whatever podcast app you're listening through. Feel free to share it with a friend, family member, or even just a group on social media, and I would greatly appreciate that. So we'll be back next week with another awesome topic. Thank you for listening to the Astrocast. I hope you have a wonderful week. Clear skies.
you're still sitting here. What are you doing? Don't you have better things to do? Go listen to another podcast. Maybe, uh, I don't know, Mr. Ballin podcast. Maybe Brad and Will made a tech pod. I don't care. Go listen to Drunken History. The zenith is the highest point in the night sky. If you look directly overhead, you are looking at the zenith. Thanks, everyone. Have a great week.